Welcome to The Millionaire's Lawyer, where you'll hear leading professionals share expert advice on how to grow your business and sell it for maximum profitability. If you want to learn lawyer-proven strategies for building and exiting your business, then this is the podcast for you. Your host, J.P. McAvoy, is a business lawyer, college professor, and best-selling author who has been assisting clients start, grow, and sell their businesses for millions of dollars for over 15 years. Will yours be the next? Now here's your host, J.P. McAvoy. Hello and welcome to The Millionaire's Lawyer. Thank you for joining us here today and hope you are well wherever you are. Interesting, as we be, launch into today's episode, uh, we're on with uh, Dr. Eric Cole, who's a uh, cybersecurity expert. And interesting, it's one of the first times that we've uh, actually had a problem with our Zoom as, as we record this, uh, and it seems to be on his side. We're uh, working out the difficulties right now. We'll bring him in. As I say, interesting, he's the CEO of Secure Anchor and is doing almost everything online now. And uh, we sort of had a laugh to say that uh, it's interesting that there was actually an issue with uh, Zoom. We'll get into whether or not Zoom is secure and a whole other range of issues with Dr. Eric Cole. Eric, thanks for thanks for dialing back through. Uh, we uh, we'll, we'll get going on the show here and sort of with a laugh because uh, I think that was the, one of the first times I've had a crash on my end of things. No coincidence. I'm speaking to a cybersecurity guy as that occurs. What happened on your end? I have no idea. I mean, this was the first time in nine months that my Zoom setup crashed. So we must be talking about an interesting topic that certain adversaries want to listen in on the conversation. So there you go. Well, that's and that's usually the case with the show. Yeah, thanks. So I mean, let's let's introduce or get in right into it because as a cybersecurity expert, you're seeing different attacks at different times, various things, a lot of them unexplained really, aren't they? I mean, from, from your perspective, where does the range of things come from? What do you actually typically see? Over the last year, especially with uh, COVID and everything happening, what we're really seeing is a lot of the attacks are fairly straightforward, but organizations and individuals are letting their guards down. So even the recent attacks, I don't know if you followed the news, but there were some big attacks against the government and software Mm -hmm. vendors and others. And in all cases, it's caused because of one of two things. Either they have servers that are accessible from the internet that aren't up to date, so they have known vulnerabilities, or users are phished and send an email. And the problem with the day and age that we live is I could take you or anyone in the audience through 45 minutes of awareness. I could tell you about every threat on the planet. But if you walk out of that session and you get an email that says five of your coworkers or five students at your child's school were infected with COVID and click on this link to find out if you're in contact with them, you know everyone's clicking. I mean, everyone's clicking because they're Mm -hmm. so scared. So we're playing right into the adversary's hands. So we've created an environment where even though the attackers have advanced skill sets, they don't need to use them because we have so many vulnerabilities and people are so concerned about everything else. Unfortunately, cybersecurity is one of the last things on their agenda. Yeah, we're just walking, you know, we're just throwing the doors wide open right now, aren't we? That's that's essentially what's happening because we're 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 in uncertain times uh, and we're overreacting as well, aren't we? Absolutely. And you look at what happened March or April is most organizations small, medium or large, if we go back a year ago, had pretty good security. They had their network architecture, their firewalls, their different components in place, their endpoint security. People were in the office behind the different protection. And then literally overnight, we said, okay, let's have everybody work from home. 
And we opened mm-hmm. up all these new offices, people's homes that don't have good security, don't have good computers, aren't up to date. So that's problem one. And then in order for them to work from home, we very quickly took all of our servers and said, let's make them accessible from the internet, either directly or via the cloud. So yes, we created an environment that was very easy for people to work remotely without a lot of roadblocks. But guess what? That's also easy for the adversary to break in. Yeah, somebody else to come in as well. Now we're doing this on Zoom, obviously. Uh, how secu- And we heard a lot early on about uh, how uh, Zoom was rushing things out and they were making it very easy for us to communicate with each other. But of course, in so doing, also created some, well, the way you call adversaries, opportunities for adversaries to uh, to take advantage or uh, exploit that. How has Zoom fixed things up, uh, I guess, in the, in, the, in the last few months? Really, the big thing that Zoom did was they just had features that were optional and made them mandatory. So I'm always one of those that if you make a mistake, I'm going to call you out. But if you're doing the right thing, I'm also going to defend you. So I was one of the proponents of Zoom because here was the problem. Zoom had really good security built in. It was just not turned on by default. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. they had passwords, but you had to turn it on. They had waiting rooms, but you had to turn it on. They had unique meeting identifiers, but you had to turn it on. They had passcodes, but you had to turn it on. They had locking meetings, but you had to turn it on. The problem was people always make the assumption that any technology is secure by default. They didn't understand how to use it. And therefore, they created scenarios that made it very easy to break in. Like, for example, you had the prime minister of the UK give out his public link for Zoom. I'm like, come on, man. I mean, and, and what are you thinking? Exactly. And they, and they didn't have any passwords. They didn't have any locking of meetings. So yeah, during his meeting, you have people connecting in, running through naked and stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> of course. Yes. I mean, it's like giving everyone, hey, I'm having a party this weekend. Here's my address. There's not going to be any controls. There's not going to be any checks. Just And then you're shocked that 300 crazy people show up. So it, it's just, I realized with that a lot of common sense with security isn't really there and people weren't implementing. So all really Zoom did over the last four or five months is they now require a unique ID, a password, a lock. So they just turned on a lot of those features. So now it's in people's face and they have to use it as opposed to being smart enough to know to turn it on. Yeah. And that's interesting, Eric, because a lot of the things you mentioned uh, I know from my own experience, uh, and I had some of them turned on, but uh, it's interesting that I guess with each successive update, it actually forced it upon us, didn't it? Yes. I mean, it, it actually makes it so you now need these things, which is good. And uh, and you're not hearing the same stories with respect to Zoom in the, in the marketplace. What about some of these other platforms? So, I mean, you talk about uh, Teams, uh, where the Google Hangouts, like uh, you still hear about people sort of uh, jumping into these meetings and, and, and uh, sort of, uh, I don't know if how nefarious it is, but certainly disruptive, right? Uh, there's some disruptive things going on. Uh, how secure are they? What are some best tips that people could be doing as they, again, continue to do business in the online environment? Yeah, you see a lot with Teams and all these other platforms that are really meant for open, easy collaboration. It's that Mm -hmm. constant balance between convenience and security. So if you want to have a meeting or a place that everyone can hang out, that's always the same, like Secure Anchor, something easy people remember, and anybody can join whenever they want, and it's very open and flowing. The problem is that information is going to get out and people are going to be able to connect, perform access and other problems. So what you really have to get to is if you really want to have a controlled meeting, you need to have people register. You need to verify and validate who's there. And then you need to unmute and or turn off their microphones and just take control of the platform. But to me, it's no different than the real world. 
is if I had a meeting in the real world, let's say we had this with our school board. If the school board has a public open meeting, a crazy person could show up and run naked across stage. Uh, So it's the same thing. Here's the difference though. The impact and criminal component to it. If I show up and I get undressed, and I don't know how we went from Eric running naked across stage, but we'll we'll go with it. Uh, (laughs) And I run across stage, the probability of me getting arrested, put in jail is probably pretty high. But if I go into a Zoom meeting and I'm wearing a mask, so I'm COVID compliant and nobody knows who I am and you do that, it's much harder to catch. So I think all it's done is make it a lot easier for people to be disruptive. It hasn't created anything new. It's just a lot simpler. So we just have to take control of our platform, monitor who's joining, lock our meetings, and just general good hygiene that we have to learn because most people didn't have to learn it two or three years ago. Now it's sort of Zoom hygiene, Zoom etiquette is now new things that we have to train people on. Yeah, exactly. And to be aware of, I mean, as you say, using your head, thinking through that what needs to occur and uh, using the proper protocols to do that. So, I mean, aside from somebody running naked through a meeting, obviously that's happened. We talk about some disruptive things. What are some of the really sort of more nefarious things that can occur? Like when we talk about these adversaries, I mean, other than just influencing people or trying to change opinions, what are some of the damage they can do a, to a business? I guess probably the biggest thing being theft, right? What, what do you see uh, as you're consulting or working with people and some of the breaches that you've seen? Yeah, yeah that's a lot of it is just uh, information, theft and breach of confidentiality because we see it at two levels. One is if you're having a big corporate meeting, uh, not only could I join the meeting, but I could potentially pay somebody 200 bucks to record it. Or we even have cases where somebody you'd have no idea has their cell phone and they're holding it out of camera shot and recording it. So it's just a lot easier for adversaries to be able to get access to the information, access to the data. The the other one we see a lot of is controlling the computer. So we had this with mm-hmm. the CEO of a big Fortune 500 company where he let his kids who are seven and nine play games on the computer he uses for Zoom. They got infected and then all of his Zoom was being recorded and uploaded to the foreign adversary. So it's just, once again, a lot more awareness. You have the disruptive part we talked about, but also the data theft, the information theft, and people just finding out critical data that you don't want to be public. Yeah, stuff that you otherwise wouldn't publish or make public is being made public. So to be aware of protecting all of those things. Uh, you do that, obviously, and you consult on that side of things. You also do, I mean, you provide expert testimony through uh, court proceedings as well. You've been doing, I guess, a fair bit of that. And it sounds like all of that's gone online as well, right? How has that changed or how has that evolved? So it was uh, the first week in March and I'm in San Diego and I'm actually testifying in trial at a IP case patent litigation. And I get done Thursday afternoon testifying. The court was closed Friday anyway. And then I get a call on Monday that because of COVID, they, she declared a mistrial, the judge, and basically trials off, we have to start over again. And then I actually had six other trials that were planned for this year. Four of them got postponed. And it's sort of almost like an indefinite. Two of them were moved to bench trials. So they are doing, at least at the federal level, they're doing bench trials virtually. They haven't moved to jury trials virtually federally as far as I'm aware. But so I don't think they have now. But but I'll tell you, it actually went amazingly smooth. I was surprised, except for a few little weird things, like with the judge not knowing he was on camera and stuff like that. But but I mean, he had a couple of monitors. You were able to listen in. And I, I went on live when I was testifying. It actually went reasonably well, considering all the circumstances. And then I've done a lot of depositions virtually, which are also a lot nicer because you now get the evidence in electronic form. 
So it's much easier to search and analyze. And in a real deposition, you're handed things and you have to read and go through it. So it does make it a little easier. But but at least now I've had multiple trials that are keep getting postponed postponed almost indefinitely. So it's going to be interesting on the backlog in these courts and how they're going to be able to recover and get back to any resemblance of normal. Yeah, we're talking to clients and uh, hearing that uh, people almost don't see court. Well, it's it's certainly not as accessible. So it's not perhaps if you could ever call it a solution, it's even less solution now than perhaps it had been in the past for that reason. And maybe also change forever. I mean, I don't know now that we've seen some of the ways that we can do things, as you say, uh, it's even a little bit easier in some regards. I don't know if we're going to go back to the way it was. I mean, I think that you'll be in a position where you can continue to do depositions virtually, and perhaps trials will continue to be conducted that way as well. What do you think about that? Is there any, any you know, and I guess it's still to be defined, but you can you imagine us continuing to uh, do things similar to what we're doing now? I think they're going to have to accept that we're going to have to do jury trials uh, virtually. It, it, it ha- I mean, there's no way we're going to get back. And if you go another year, I mean, the courts are already yeah. backed up a year, two or three years, and these dockets are, are full. I mean, it, it's going to create an insanity of what, what do you do with these cases? You can't really rush them through. And what, what I've tried sort of telling the courts, because they've called me up, is you can do things where you can lock somebody's computer remotely. Because what they're concerned about with a jury trial is that the juror is surfing the web or looking up other things or researching who's Eric Cole and stuff like that. So you can actually, even with Zoom or others, you can do it where it forced full screen and it takes control that as long as you're in Zoom, you can't use the computer for anything else. Now, could a juror have a second computer? Absolutely. But heck, even in a real trial, a juror could go to lunch and take out their cell phones and do it. So I, th- I think we're, we're, we're losing the trust level of doing things a certain way and we're not willing to change. And all of a sudden, when you give it a chance, because I'll be honest with you, I have three kids and I was totally against distance learning. I thought it would be a disaster and it'd be the worst thing on the planet. But I'll be honest with you, maybe I had such a low bar. It's better than I expected. My 10th grader and then I have two two, uh, children in college. It actually was a lot better than they thought. It actually worked out a lot better. And I think, unfortunately, this is the new normal where you're not going to see anyone returning to schools. I scare people when I say this for at least the next three years. I think we have that long of a runway just with everything that was created. And I think industries that don't adapt are going to fail or go away. So I think the courts and others have to learn how to use the technology and go virtual. Yeah, Eric, that's a huge point because, as you say, things have changed and those that aren't adapting, and and most have, or they've actually been shut down because they can't operate otherwise, uh, if they haven't adapted and don't continue to do so, they will become dinosaurs, they will become extinct. You simply have to. It's interesting you say even the schooling because, uh, same I've got a 10-year-old that is uh, online and I think the learning is still there. It's unfortunate to see that the interaction is not there, right? Uh, We do so much now by screen time and it'll be interesting to see what studies and things look and, and speak to about that because we simply just don't see each other as often as we used to. I don't know what the long-term impact of that is, but it's obviously going to be an impact as well. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. When I've actually done, because my daughter, who's the 10th grader, the youngest, after about a month of the virtual learning, like she was really down and depressed. And, and me yeah. and my wife were like, what's going on? And what we finally realized it was the social aspect. So yeah. I'm fortunate to have my own business and I have a building and we have an extra conference room. So what I actually do now is every morning I go in and pick up her and five of her friends and they come into the office and they do their schoolwork together with their headphones. And then I usually buy them lunch or take them out to lunch and just create that social interaction. But you're right. If we continue virtual, we have to figure out a way 
to continue the social interaction because otherwise you're going to make people crazy. I mean, when I work for the government, the best torture method on the planet is solitary confinement. And that's to mm -hmm. me what we did to this country. We basically tortured everybody, put them in solitary confinement and wonder why everyone's going crazy, right? We're social yeah. beings and we need that interaction. So I think you're spot on. Even if we go virtual, people have to figure out how do we still get social interaction, even in controlled groups, because otherwise we're going to lose our minds. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a, so interesting you say it. even a form of torture. I haven't heard, heard a Zoom be uh, equated to a form of torture yet, although I can uh, certainly understand the analogy. You also just hit on something that might be another great business idea. The way that's so, I mean, what you're doing with your daughter and to uh, uh, ensure that she's got that interaction with her friends is, is really very sweet. And I can imagine that being a, actually a business idea in the future. People saying, let's create a situation where people can in, interact with each other in a, in a way that you type that, that you just described, sort of a social type setting. Now, I know that's not your main business. Uh, obviously, that's your uh, job as a dad. Your main business is Secure Anchor. Uh, you do a range of things as we talked about from there. Uh, on the consulting uh, side of things, uh, what type of clients are you working with now? With Secure Anchor, we really have three main product offerings. So we do security assessments, and that's for mid-size organizations. So, so typically, companies between 500 million and two bill that have an IT department, they don't have security, but they need help with that. So we'll come in and assess their environment, do virtual CISO, things like that. The second line of business, which I actually created because of COVID, so I'm always a big fan as an entrepreneur, everything's an opportunity if you look at it correctly. Mm -hmm. So I actually mm -hmm. created a chief information security officer virtual training because so many companies now need the leadership. So many people were laid off that it's a new opportunity. So we're now doing online certification and training for chief information security officers. And then of course, we have the expert witness line of business that's still doing fairly well, despite uh, us not being in court like we planned. <laughs> Yeah, and that will continue, as you say, be something that as we work through the backlog, continue to be an area uh, of growth for you. Uh, when you're doing a, an audit or, uh, you know, looking at things, does this stem a little bit from your background? I mean, you were, I mean, I guess what, what you call an ethical hacker, right? You're actually looking at weak points uh, in, a, in a systems network in your previous life. And I guess you continue to do that for the, for the, for the companies that you consult with now. Is that, is that the right way to describe it? Or how do you describe it? Yeah, so I, I started off my career in cybersecurity in the late 80s, early 90s at the CIA and was essentially a professional hacker for eight years. Yeah, that's right. A professional hacker, right? Yeah. Ethical, professional, whatever you call it, right? You're finding weaknesses. Exactly. And you're always finding ways to break in. And after eight years doing that at the government, I realized two things. One, that offense is easy. You can always break in. If you have any functionality, there's always going to be exposures. So any company is always going to be able to get broken into. So it was boring. And the second thing is I love our government and I'm glad I got to serve it, but I don't like structure. I want creativity. I like to be my own boss. I like to be in charge. So, entrepreneur. so, so I left You're there and I'm like, okay, yeah. I need to start and build and sell my own companies, which I've done several times successfully. And I need to focus in on the defensive side of the house. So we're really going in and helping companies understand where their exposures and probably the two biggest things that I always run across with everyone I talk to is they don't think they're a target and they don't think cybersecurity is their responsibility. I hear it all the time. We're just dealing with a, a very small dentist office where they're like, Eric, no one would ever target us. No one would ever breach. And 30,000 of their records were compromised. It was all local people. And now everyone's suing them and they're probably going to go out of business because they lost trust with their client base. So I, I sort of try to really raise awareness that it doesn't matter who you are or what you do. You got to recognize you are a target and take responsibility for this. Yeah, I guess that's it. You have to be certainly responsible. You might imagine yourself, you 
nobody would want the information, but the, ra- the reality is if you're being entrusted with it, it's your duty to, to protect it. It's kind of scary when you say that, as you say, offense is easy. There's always a way in. I mean, I, I guess that's the reality, isn't it? You do your best to protect yourself or play the best defense possible, right? That's all you can do. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, the, the way I always draw it out is if you imagine a chart on the one side, you have security. So you have 100% security and 0% security. On the other side, you have functionality. You have zero functionality, 100%. So at the top, you have 100% security, which is zero functionality, which means just like the law of gravity, the law of security says as soon as you add functionality, you're decreasing security. So if you have an Alexa, if you're doing anything where you have functionality or benefit, there's always a risk or exposure. The trick is to not fight it, but embrace it and say, is the benefit worth the risk or exposure? Mm-hmm. That's a great way of putting it. You know, we talk about those Alexas, those Googles, and there's probably systems going off I all over exactly. the place as I say that for people listening, that. right? Uh, yeah. So you say those words. Uh, I mean, we all know the uh, the benefits of them. Uh at what point, or let me ask it this, the question this way, are the benefits worth the risk? I guess everyone has to make that decision for themselves, right? Exactly. But the problem is most people only look at benefits. So a great example, when Alexa came out, everybody wanted them because it was so cool, right? You could go in and say, what's the weather or play this music or, or, or this or that. And people only looked at the benefit and they said, oh, this is awesome. Then a couple years later, it started becoming well-known, which I said from the beginning, that Alexa is listening to everything you say. And, and I always mm-hmm. love that because people say, oh, no, Eric, it's not listening in. I'm like, think about it. If it's not listening, how does it respond? And then you like wait for it and they're like, oh, and then, and then the light goes on. And what they didn't realize is it was recording two hours worth of your conversation. So, so mm-hmm. now you have to decide whether having a device in your house that records two hours of conversations uh, repeatedly, is that worth the benefit of being able to have an automated voice recognized system? Some people do, some people don't, but that's really the trick with securities. People always ask me, is this secure? And I'm like, it's really, you have to decide, is driving secure? Is flying on an airplane secure, right? There's risks with all of those, but we recognize that there's risks, but the benefit outweighs it. The problem with cybersecurity is people don't think about the risks, they ignore it, and that's where it becomes problematic. Right. And so it's just being aware, as you say, I love the, as you describe, like functionality versus security, right? So people to weigh that and balance that, make decisions for themselves. Some decisions get made for us. Uh, it's interesting, you've been with the CIA, and when we talk about the government, uh, I mean, we know they're listening, I guess. I mean, that's the same thing where you just take it, understand that. And it's also for the same kind of reason. I think like you think about, I guess, protection versus uh, privacy, right? It's that same kind of balance that's in play. Is there, are there things that we should be worried about? I mean, when they're listening all the time. Is I mean, what are they doing with all that? Yeah, yeah, the thing I always say is if you look at the sheer volume of communication, both Zoom, internet, email, web surfing, everything else, there's no way that the government could even possibly monitor 10% of that. So it's not like they have rooms of people that are just listening to everything everyone says. (laughs) What it comes down to that I always tell people is don't get to the point where you're noticed, right? If you start going in and doing fraudulent activity with your taxes, if you start going and robbing stores or things like that, if you get on the list, yes, nowadays it's much easier for them to monitor you, track you, and arrest you, which once again, there's a lot of debate on whether that's good or not, but but that's really what it comes down to. You and me for what we're doing and the average communication, they could care less about it. Yeah, they, they could care, care less. less right? the, yeah. the thing though, is that you want to be more concerned is not the government. 
I, I don't care about the government. They're not going to be concerned about this. What we need to worry about are the big tech is hmm. Facebook, Google, Twitter, because guess what? They do care about it because that's how they do all their targeted marketing. And, and people are always shocked, but I, I can guarantee just on your phone with your phone in the room and Siri activated, just go and start talking about, pick something like blood pressure. Just say, hey, my blood pressure is high. I'm wondering about blood pressure. Or just go to Google and type in the search blood pressure medicine and do one search. And I will guarantee that within 24 hours, all of the ads, all of the emails, and everything that you start is guess what going to be for blood pressure medicine, uh, reducing blood pressure, and all those factors. So to me, the bigger concern is not the government because they're doing it to protect us. It's all the big tech where they're gathering all of our data, building profiles mm -hmm. of us and using that to be able to do target marketing. That's the thing that scares me because now we have these digital personas that are basically for sale. And our privacy to me is a train that left the station and is never coming back. Yeah. Yeah. And be, again, being aware, right? That, that all that information is out there and is being used. Do you think they'll break up these, uh, these uh, tech companies? Do you think that they're going to get to the spot where they say, this is just, they're just too much. There's uh, uh, we have to break these into smaller pieces so they don't become all encompassing. No. And, and the reason is I don't think you can because it, you, you can close down. Like they say that Facebook is a monopoly. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. I mean, there are other social media platforms. So, so I wouldn't really go far and say they're a monopoly. I would say they're definitely a category king, but they're definitely not a monopoly. So I think it's hard to call it a monopoly. But then the question is, so you break it up into different entities. What does that do? Because they're going to still share the information, right? Microsoft, Google, Facebook, you consider them competition. They all sell, buy, and share information with anybody. So to me, it's just the reality of the situation. And I think what you need to do is instead of spending our energy and effort on trying to break them up, because they're smart enough and they have uh, better attorneys and lawyers, so they'll figure out a way around it. What we really need to do is put in better regulation on how do we control and manage them. Keep Facebook the way it is, but make them not capture information or put regulation to make it illegal or put things in place to fix the problem. But trying to break them up is futile. And even if you do, it doesn't solve the issue. Regulation fines and holding these companies accountable is really the solution. Yeah. And Eric, I see a theme emerging from our conversation, right? Which is being aware like uh, of, of how uh, you know information, your private information is being used, what your security situation looks like, what these companies are doing, just being aware, right? And acting accordingly. Now, you've been very aware as you've uh, done things in the past. You started and grown a couple of companies in your own right. Can you talk about that experience? What it's like as an entrepreneur to grow a business? You've done it a couple of times. Uh, what that's looked like and how you've sort of evolved or gone through the business evolution in your own life? Uh, sure. So, so I, I've done it a couple different ways. So one of the first companies I started, TSGI, that was actually with a group of folks. So that went with five other people and I was the techie guy, but I also got a piece of the action, which is nice. So that, that's probably the first thing, regardless of what your role is, if you're helping to start a company, make sure you get a piece of the action because yes. ownership outweighs salary every day of the week. So you want to make sure, and that's the trick where I see some of these smart people get played where they'll give them huge salaries and they'll take their intellectual property and they get no benefit from it. So make sure you always have an ownership. And that one was a government contracting service. So basically 8% margins. And that the two things I learned from that was when you only have government contracts and consulting, you have a very low multiplier. So, so we only mm -hmm. got a 1x 
multiplier on that. But the, the second big lesson was if you have other funds, you can grow quicker and faster. So then my second endeavor was I, it was a software company. And in that case, we got funding. So we got $30 million worth of VC funding, which was great. And we were able to grow really quick and be aggressive and sold at a high. But then you get a much smaller multiplier of the bigger pie. So you sort of learn that lesson. And now just because I was bored, and my wife's like, you need to do something because I'm gonna, I'm you're gonna, I'm gonna kill you, man. Because because I'm that annoying type guy at home. So I started my company, Secure Anchor, and this one, I, it, it's more right now, sort of a boutique where I, I'm investing in it. So I'm sort of the VC and keeping it a little small, and I'm the only owner of it. So it's sort of a different model than before. But what I like with this, because what I want to prove is, can you grow to a certain level? And I find that as an individual with a small team that you can very quickly and easily grow if you have good services, consulting and others to about five or six mil. And then at that point is when you need to go in and either invest yourself or get external funding because you have to hire more people to get to that 25 mark. So I was sort of doing an experiment of how far you can go before you reach that. And at least in my experience, the four to five million is about that threshold mark where you then need to have a new influx of cash. Absolutely. Yeah. And so uh, thanks for taking us through that history because you just sort of talked uh, you know, about a number of different models and the pros and cons, again, really of, of, of each of them. And it's interesting where you are now is, yeah, it's the power of leverage, right? Uh, there's only, the fact of the matter is there's only so much you can do and, and with a small team can do. You need, if you want to grow, and, and most people do, uh, the power of leverage is such that you need to add pieces, right? And we have found that throughout with our clients as well to watch them get to that sort of next level uh, is make sure that they are bringing in the pieces that help them get a little extra torque, right? A little extra push. Sometimes it's even the skill set of the people you're bringing in. Some people are very good at starting companies. Others are very good at growing them, right? So bringing in the right skill set to uh, for the people that, that uh, can do the job that's required at uh, the certain times or the at the appropriate times during the evolution of the company. And that's clearly what you're seeing as well, right? Exactly. You have to know what you're good at. And then the other things I would give, especially to entrepreneurs that, that I had to learn is to me, the two most important metrics of any business are margins and valuation. Because like, like you hear people all the time, you ask them, would you rather have a $50 million company or a $10 million company? And almost everybody is tricked and say 50 million. I'm like, wait, what if the 50 million is only gets a 1x valuation and you're only making 5% margins? And what if the 10 million has an eight evaluation, eight times evaluation, and you're making 70%. Now, all of a sudden, you're making a heck of a lot more with that 10 million and the 50 million. So I think people get caught up with revenue. And I think it's a really bad metric of success. You got to peel back the layers and say, okay, what are the margins and valuation you can get from this? Because to me, ultimately, any business, whether you decide to or not, is all about selling and selling for the highest multiplier you can. Yeah. And it's, it certainly has to be front of mind. I see, I work with a lot of people that they, they've never even considered that or what their exit might look like. It's like, well, you have to have some idea what that might look like, or you're never going to get or achieve what the ultimate goal is. So I'm glad you're saying that. Certainly being aware and making sure there's a plan in place. Now you're a secure anchor. You're growing. You're growing now. Uh, how do people find you? How do people find out more about some of the things that you're doing with Secure Anchor? Uh, so two ways. One is if you go to our website, secure-anchor.com, and that's all our information. But I'm very active on social. I love giving back. So on almost every platform, if you go to D-R-E-R-I-C-C-O-L-E, Dr. Eric Cole, you can find me. And I'm on all the major platforms. We put out videos all the time, content, because I just love helping people and giving advice from what I've learned over the years. 
Yeah. And you've got tons of it. So please, anybody listening that's interested, go to Secure Anchor and you'll see the wealth of resources you have there. And you've done a ton of media as well. So uh, uh, appreciate your time here on the show today and sharing with us some of your views and some of the things that uh, you've learned over the years. I like to leave these shows, Eric, with one sort of, I mean, you've done a lot of this throughout the, the discussion we had today, but one thing people can take with them through the rest of the day, through the rest of the week, maybe, uh, that will impact their life directly. Obviously, so from a security uh, aspect of things, as you got incredible expertise in that area, but maybe it's just something with respect to a business itself, right? Or the growth of a business itself. What's something you'd offer to somebody listening now? So it's sort of because I know we hit the two sides. So on the security side, I would say, don't ignore security. You're a target and companies that take security seriously are the ones that are going to be successful. And the ones that ignore it are going to have a breach and are going to fall pretty quickly. And then on the business side, I'm very big on everybody should owe it to themselves and their family to start their own business. To me, why work for somebody else when you're earning them a dollar and they're giving you 10 cents on the dollar? Why not go in and at least give it a shot, earn a dollar, keep it? Well, Uncle Sam's going to take some, but when taxes are aside, at least you're sharing it. And to me, especially in the current climate we're in, it's so low risk because you go, you try running your own business, you can do it virtually. You can even do it on the side or the evening because you don't have to commute into Mm -hmm. the office. But I think it's one of the best journeys. And if anybody has not tried it, it's not for everybody, but you at least need to try running a business, starting a company, because you owe it to yourself to see if that's in your DNA. And if it is, you have so much more to give to yourself and your family. Eric, that is so well said. As you say, in your DNA, there's a lot of things. It's like, it's growth. It's personal growth as well. There's a lot of opportunity out there. Uh, we talked about how things have been shifting, right? So in this, I guess we'll call it the COVID era, but we'll soon, soon hopefully be in the post-COVID <laughs> era. There's a new reality, lots of business opportunities. Maybe one of them will be creating that nice virtual space that you were talking about for your daughter. I love it. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for being on the show today. We look forward to connecting with you next time, Eric. And as always, stay safe and be secure. Thanks, JP. Thanks for listening to The Millionaire's Lawyer. Please subscribe and rate on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. To get your business millionaire assessed and to access the wide variety of resources that we offer in addition to this podcast, go to jpmcavoy.com. That's jpmcavoy.com.